It is good to have you all here with us today, uh, this evening. Welcome back from spring break. I've heard uh, great stories of where you all have been and what's happened, and some of you are envying each other's suntans and sunburns, um, neither of which I have, and I wish I had one of them. Um, so for those of you who are here to RUF for the first time, um, uh, and you don't know where you are, RUF is a Christian ministry here at Wake Forest, and... Um, RUF exists for both the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer, also for the unbeliever, uh, for those who are on the inside and also for those who are on the outside, uh, for the student who always wear a, wears a collar and Nantucket Reds and has whales on his tie, and the student who wears baggy jerseys and baggy jeans. Um, RUF is for you. Um, RUF exists for those who buy into Christianity for the long haul and for those who are uh, ready, ready to sell it at the drop of a hat. Um, in other words, wherever you are and whoever you are and wherever you're from, we're glad you're here. Welcome. And if this is your first time or um, you brought someone here for the first time, thank you. Um, we know that it can be hard, um, but we hope that you feel welcome here and that you meet a couple people um, and that you feel like you're a part um, and welcomed into this community. So um, as you know, we have seven weeks, right, until the end of the semester, which is crazy. Uh, and so we have this six um, RUFs for the rest of the semester. And so during these six weeks, we are going to be studying the book of Ruth together um, during this large group time. And so why would we read Ruth? Um, well, Ruth is a book, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's in the Old Testament, and it's a book that is filled with tragedy and grief and hope and romance. Um, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, it. It might have been a woman who wrote the book of Ruth. And, and Ruth teaches us that in the midst of chaos, God builds his kingdom. In the midst of chaos, God's, God builds his kingdom through extending, through people extending his love and kindness to their neighbors. Um, Ruth actually sits between two other books. It sits between the book of Judges, and if you're familiar with Judges, book, Judges is a book of chaos. Um, and the chaos of life um, running away from God. And on the other side of Ruth uh, is the, are the books of the kingdom, starting with 1 Samuel, and the coming in, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth. And Ruth is a bridge between the chaos of judges and the kingdom of God coming. So in order to go from chaos to the kingdom of God, you have to go through the book of Ruth. It's a book about a foreign woman who is welcomed into the people of God, who receives back all that was lost to her, and she ends up finding herself in the genealogy of kings. In effect, Ruth says to us that in the chaos of this world, the love of God is being extended through his people, and that leads to the building of his kingdom. So the question that we're going to be answering the next six weeks together, because we need to have a question to answer, is how do we live a life of love in a world of broken relationships? How do we live a life of love in a world of broken relationships? And we live in a world of broken relationships, right? I was reminded of this this week uh, or this weekend. Uh, my wife and I, Mary Clark, we've got two kids, Leah, who's four, and Mary Landon, who's two. And they're at the age now where we can start doing family movie night. So uh, we were lent by Lauren a VHS copy of the classic Air Bud. All right, you've seen it, or at least you're familiar with it. It is a heartwarming tale of a dog who can play basketball. Um, so, but there's also this surprising depth to the movie, too. All right, I insisted to Mary Clark that I was going to work Airbud into this talk, and she was a little 
I'm mortified of that, but here we go. Um, so there's some depth to Airbud as well. And the depth comes that you see actually three sons in their relationships with their fathers in the movie. The first is the main character, Josh Fram. Um, and you learn as he's moving into his new house in the Pacific Northwest that uh, his father died the year before. Uh, the second character is a guy named Larry Willingham, and he's like the main basketball star in the movie. If you have seen Air Bud, you know who we're talking about. Uh, and his dad is this basketball-obsessed jerk who only loves his son when he succeeds, and he pulls him off the team when he stops getting playing time. And then there's Tom, and we're not given his last name. And his dad's the coach of the team, and after their first loss, which they lose because he ends up dropping a bunch of passes, uh, you, they go back into the gym, and you see the dad chucking the basketball at the son, punishing him. Uh, it's this really dark, sad scene, um, punishing him for losing the game for them. Right? And this illustrates um, that we do live in a world of broken relationships. I was reminded of this as well. As one, of my, one of my dearest friends um, from Richmond, uh, his father left his mom when, when he was nine months old. The, 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 the difficulty that his dad saw of, fa- of raising two sons um, terrified him to the point where he, he ran off at, at nine months, um, when his son was nine months, right? We live in a world of broken relationships. So why do relationships break? Simply put, relationships break because of loss. The loss of hope of what a relationship could, could be, loss of trust between people, loss of respect for somebody you love, loss of shared interests, loss of commitment, loss, whatever the cause is the occasion for us exiting our relationships. Think of all the broken relationships in your life. Your parents' marriage ending in a divorce, your boyfriend ending up an enemy, your best friend who's now a stranger, your high school buddies who are now scattered and distant. All of our relationships that are broken are occasioned by some sort of loss. And loss leads us to exit our relationships. Well, tonight as we um, open the book of Ruth together, we're going to see that uh, this occasion for exit, loss, this occasion for exit is actually an opportunity for love. The occasion for exit is actually an opportunity for love. So if you will um, turn with me, if you've got a Bible with you, you can open to Ruth. Um, If not, it's printed on the orange piece of paper that you got when you came in. And we're going to be reading Ruth 1, 1 through 14. This is the word of God um, that he gives to us because he loves us. Please read along with me. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They are Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives... The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Oh, shoot, we don't have the rest of verse 14. One second. I'll start from verse, um, end of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me that for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would help us to hear it and to understand it um, and to see its goodness and value to us. Show us Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Sorry about that. Lost the end of the verse in the passage. Um, So in the first five verses of this, we are introduced to the the characters in the story. We've got Elimelech, um, whose name means my God is king, and he is the husband of Naomi. He's from Bethlehem of Judah. Um, Naomi, he has, she has two sons. Her name means pleasant, and her, she has two sons with Elimelech, and they move from Bethlehem to Moab, and their sons are named Malon and Kilion, and they marry these two women, Ruth and Orpah. And then we see their loss, right? Immediately we see their loss. Elimelech dies, Malon and Kilian die, and then we're left with Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, three widows in the land of Moab. And there is not one person more desolate than a widow in the ancient Near East. And there's a lot that we miss on the surface of reading this. One author, Paul Miller, says this. He says, Naomi's losses would have been staggering for any culture. But in the ancient Near East, for a mother to lose not only her husband, but also her sons, was the epitome of suffering. A leading management consultant posed this hypothetical question to American men. He wrote, your mother, your wife, and your daughter are all in a sinking boat, and you can rescue only one of them. Who do you rescue? 60% would rescue their daughter, 40% their wife, all would leave their mothers adrift. Sorry, moms. Um, The consultant then posed the same question to Saudi Arabian men, and every one of them said they would rescue their mother. Why? Well, in the traditional cultures of the Near East, mothers have no identity outside of their home. Their daughters marry and leave while their sons remain. And they they form this powerful mother-son bond. Their sons are their life. So Naomi's losses in losing her husband and her sons was staggering. And loss is the occasion for exit. And Naomi understands this. Look at verse 8. Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
Naomi understands that the deaths of her husband and her sons is such a staggering loss that the wise move for Ruth and Orpah is for them to return to their homes of their mothers to be cared for and to wait to remarry. And while they're walking from Moab back to Bethlehem, they have this terribly sad back and forth where Naomi successfully convinces her daughters-in-law that, they, that she has nothing to give them. Orpah does the wise thing and through tears tries to parts, tries, or Orpah does the wise thing and through tears she parts ways um, with Ruth and with Naomi. And the same is true in our lives, in our experience of loss and the experience of loss in our friends and our family and our neighbors' lives. Um, we see this as an occasion for exit. And we exit our relationships in a couple of ways. First, we disengage. Um, when a friend feels like she's getting too needy, right, you stop answering her texts. Or when that guy you were friends with starts hitting on you, you start avoiding him. Or when the noise of your broken family gets too loud, you put in the earplugs. So we, get, um, we disengage uh, from loss as an exit strategy. Second, we get distracted. I found that it's much easier for me to watch five episodes of The Office at night after I put the kids to bed than to actually engage with the loss of my friends. Um, I have friends who are sick, friends who have lost people they love, friends who have experienced tragedy. And I'm not even thinking about them at the end of the day because I'm so distracted. Um, because the next episode just starts, right? And then season four of House of Cards is out now. Like, there's this, the distraction and the opportunity to run away from the loss of people I love is so great. As I was, as I was working on this today, I was just, um, I was mourning this. That this is, this is the way that I disengage, the way that I exit um, from the loss of my friends. And this is no good. Our experience of loss is an occasion for exit. And you know, all of us live lives of loss. The Christian story, what Christians believe, is that um, in creation, God, God himself, existed in perfection. There was no losing in God. Nothing could be lost, nothing was lost. But out of fullness, God created humans in his image. And loss, in fact, entered into the world through us. It entered into the world through our parents' first sin. Sin is the cause of our loss. And this is one of the distinctions of the Christian story. For modernity tells the story of progress, that everything is moving steadily towards perfection and that it has no category for loss. And post-modernity finds itself in the quicksand of meaninglessness and gives no real weight to the loss that you experience. But Christianity tells the story of beauty lost in sin. And all of us live in a world of loss and our lives tell a story of loss because we have lost God, who is our life. And the story of the Bible is the story of God entering into our loss, not seeing our loss as an occasion to exit, but as an opportunity for love. And Christians believe that we see this most clearly in Jesus, who entered into this world, who lost all things, even his own life, out of his great love for the world. Because loss, while it is the occasion for exit, is actually the opportunity for love. We see this first in Naomi. Look at verse 8. Um, again, read the verse 8. She says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi sends Ruth and Orpah out with this blessing that the Lord would deal kindly with them. And this phrase that we have translated as deal kindly um, is this Hebrew word, hesed. 
And it's a unique word to Hebrew that combines both love and loyalty together. Love and loyalty together. We heard it in the the call to worship that Tucker read. Um, It's the steadfast love of God, the hesed love of God. And Naomi wants God to do this hesed love with them. Um, And steadfast love or hesed love is this love that combines commitment with sacrifice. One author puts it this way. He says, hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with Hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. If you've had an argument with a friend in which you were slighted or not heard, you refuse to retaliate through silence. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age, which says that we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. And love like this is unbalanced or uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love, but this commitment love lies at the heart of Christianity. It is Jesus' love for us at the cross, and it's to be our love for one another. And this is the love that Naomi sends her daughters off with. She doesn't turn inward and take care of herself. She doesn't disengage from the reality of her loss or distract herself from Ruth and Orpha's loss. But rather, she understands that loving her daughters comes at great cost to herself. This is Hesed in in action. And we also see Hesed in Ruth. That rather than taking the safe route and heading home to Moab with her sister-in-law Orpah, she clings to Naomi. We see Hesed in Naomi. We see it in Ruth. And this is because Hesed is the character of God's love for us. And the Bible tells the story of God's relentless pursuit for us out of this love. Um, It tells the story that God in creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect love. And that humans, we were created as image bearers of God out of his great love for us. And then in Genesis 3, in the third chapter of the Bible, when um, Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sinned, when God could have shut this whole thing down, he didn't. Instead, he made a promise to our first parents that he would provide the remedy to their sin, that he would provide the solution and the balm to their loss. And we see this in Abraham in Genesis 15. And Abraham is considered the father of, um, of the faith. And that God made a promise to Abraham that he would save the world through Abraham's family. And Abraham asked God, how do I know that you're going to do this? And so God made a covenant with Abraham. Um, And a covenant is like what would be a modern-day business seal, a transaction that you would seal with a handshake or a signature. But in the ancient Near East, um, they did it differently. What they would do is they would take animals um, and they would cut them in half and spread them apart, and then the blood would flow down in the middle, and then each party making the business transaction would walk through it. You can imagine if we did that today, we'd have very bloody shoes. Um, But what they would do is they'd split apart, and then they would each walk through it, saying, if I break my end of the bargain, let what happened to those animals happen to me. And likewise, the other person would walk through the split animals and say, if I break my end of the bargain, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And in God's covenant with Abraham... The Lord passed through the animals twice. 
And what he's saying that is that if I break my covenant with you, it's on me. And Adam, if you break this covenant, it's also on me. And like all beautiful things, we see Hesed most clearly in Jesus Christ, who left the freedom of heaven to enter into the constraint of human life. And when he was faced with how bad things actually are in the world, how lost in sin creation actually was, he didn't disengage. He didn't distract himself from it, but he took it onto and into himself. And he willingly walked the path to the cross, taking the consequences of the covenant with Abram, Abraham onto himself, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham in his life and death. And what this says to us, what this says to you and to me, is that God looks at your life and he looks at my life and he doesn't see an occasion to exit. He knows your sin. He knows what you've done and what, been, what has been done to you. He knows what your shame is and he doesn't disengage. Instead, he loves you. And as Jesus hung on the cross, dying for our sin and loss, embodying the love of God for the world and securing our life in himself, as he hung on the cross, he was given the occasion to exit. The Jewish rulers yelled at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, let him save himself. And then soldiers also mocked him. If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. But because he is the embodiment of God's hesed love for us, he didn't. He stayed on that cross, taking our loss onto himself. And this is what Christians believe about love. That our occasions for exit are actually opportunities for love. Because we worship a God who is love. And a God who died for us out of that love. Um, Greg Thompson, who is a pastor in Charlottesville, um, tells this story. He says, there are a few consistencies in history, but this is one of them. If you live sometime between the end of the second century and the beginning of the 16th century, it's a long time. And if you were a man, woman, or child, and you lived as far south as North Africa, as far east as modern Iraq, as far, as far north as modern Scotland, and as far west as modern Spain... And if you, as a man, woman, or child, in your freedom or necessity were obliged to take a long journey, to flee across the remoteness, the remoteness of that world, you would in all likelihood spend your days scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what it is? A church. You'd be looking for a church. Now, sometimes you're looking for a cathedral. Most, look, most likely, most of the time, you're looking for a monastery or a small parish church. But these were communities of men and women and children laying, living together around a common rule of life, devoted to God, devoted to their love of God and to their love of neighbor. And you were looking for these places because all of them, whether they were a cathedral or a monastery or a hermitage, you knew that they would take you in. Now, there weren't any hotels during this time period. These are the places that you would go. And all the things that you would know or might not know about the church, the one thing that just about everyone knew was that the church was the place where strangers were welcomed as guests. And this was just a part of the vocation of the church in the world. In fact, this vocation of hospitality, this calling for the church of hospitality, was so deeply embedded into the theology of practice of the church that most of these communities actually had manuals that were written 
on how to receive guests when they would come to you. Because that is what guests would do. They would show up at your door. And these, manage- and these manuals ranged across languages, across cultures, across generations. But all of them bear witness to this calling of loving their neighbors. I want to give you one example. Um, this is the Benedictine rule, which was written in the 6th century in Italy. And this is written by our brothers and sisters. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say... I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith and to the pilgrims. Once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers are to meet him with all the courtesy of love. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure, by a bow of the head or by complete prostration of the body. Christ is to be adored in them because he is indeed welcomed in them. The abbot, who is the head of the community, would pour water on the hands of the guest and with the entire community would wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving the poor and pilgrims because in them more particularly, Christ is received. Isn't that amazing? Throughout history, the unique calling of the Christian church has been to be a people who order themselves around love. A people who know that the loss their neighbors experience is an occasion for exit. And so they order themselves to live like loss is, in fact, the opportunity for love. And so now we come to us here at Wake Forest with this call to embody the Hesed love of God on this campus. If this is who God is, if God is the God of Hesed, the God of steadfast love, the God of love without an exit strategy... What type of life can we live together so this campus would know this, this hesed, this non-stopping, non-failing, great, deep love of God? So I've been thinking about this. Um, a place for us to start would be to ask ourselves some questions. Who is outside of your love? Whose loss do you always see as an occasion for exit rather than an opportunity for love? What groups of people do you not engage with on campus because it's too hard or it would cost you too much? And who are the individuals in your life that are just too difficult and it's so much easier to exit than to love? You know, love is so hard and subconsciously we're allergic to it. It's because we rightly sense that death is at the center of love, right? Naomi gives Ruth and Orpah freedom, the freedom and the opportunity to be remarried and to have children in Moab and takes on her own already broken life. She takes on loneliness and poverty by giving up what little hope she has left. She gives them a hope in a future. And we can imagine that this would feel like death. And this kind of exchange, taking on death to give someone else life, anticipates Jesus' death, where he takes our sin and gives us his gift of acceptance and righteousness and life. Substitution is the structure of love. And when you realize that death is at the center of love, it is actually quietly liberating. Instead of fighting the death that comes with love, You begin to embrace what your Father in heaven has given to you. And a small resurrection begins in your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of Hesed and you are the God of steadfast love. 
that our loss and our sin, while we see it as an occasion for exit, some of us even as an occasion to exit our own lives, um, you do not see this, but you come towards us in love, binding yourself to us in Christ, that on the cross you take on our loss, that we might know your love and be restored to you. Lord, help us to believe this and to move out with this love that you so greatly lavish on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.